drive a present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later. The Home Star Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham and Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 119. I am Peter. And I am Joey. <laughs> Sorry everyone, I had to poke him with a stick to wake him up there. <laughs> a long week, man. <laughs> That's a long week, but it's a good week. Yeah, yeah. You realize that your worth is, a, you know, upwards of $11 million. <laughs> yeah, or at least I, uh, your, your company has now realized hopefully that. Hopefully they realize that. Yeah, I, uh, I, ha- I spent most of the week doing an emergency recovery of a database that uh, was worth about $11 million to the company, and I was the only person that it turned out was able to do it, and it cost me about 100 hours this week. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I was thinking? What would be hilarious is is come Monday, like your boss calls you into the office and say, okay, let's go over your projects. Like, what? You didn't spend any time on your project last week? (laughs) We're now a week behind. What have you been doing this whole time? (laughs) That's funny. That would be really funny to have that happen. (laughs) Yeah, actually, by... uh, by Tuesday evening, I had already worked a 40-hour work week. That's that's how rough of a week this was for me. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's all over now. Yeah. You yep. you got it back, which makes me realize I sent you a link uh, earlier in the week to which you ignored. <laughs> and then when you had time, you finally uh, went to it. I think that this experience this week clearly shows that you are a DBA. <laughs> I'm a database administrator. Yeah. Because uh, there was a leak, uh, a link that was posted on a, uh, a tech read uh, site, tech blog uh, called TechCrunch. Okay. Uh, that basically was announcing some company is giving away a trip into space for a database administrator. Yeah, it's actually Redgate Software. They okay. make software for database administration. They make tools to help you manage your databases. Yeah, and so I sent that to Joey. He's like, "Yeah, but I'm not a David. My title yeah, isn't that." It does uh, say in the in the thing that you have to have the title of database administrator with your employer. So until you hire me as your database administrator, Pete, <laughs> when can you start? <laughs> uh, I, I I'm gonna give it a shot. I'm gonna try the puzzles. But the first puzzle was pretty hard. I don't know if you watched the videos or no. Anything, I but. didn't follow anything uh, because. As soon as it went to database administrator, I thought, oh, this is for Joey. He <laughs> handles that stuff. It, it, it's also just kind of a uh, an alternate reality game, you know, one of those puzzle clue kind yeah, of things. Yeah, but you like those. I do. I enjoy those. Yeah. If you need any help, I'd be happy to try and assist you, but uh, uh, traditionally those are not my forte. Um, you look a little lost. I, I had a water bottle around here somewhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I guess uh, looking at it kind of gave it away there, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. It was hiding behind the monitor. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so um, 
I don't have anything to talk about. No announcements. Uh, and you seem to be conscious at the moment, <laughs> though it looks like you're fading fast over there. Yeah. Well, my wife actually tried to convince me to cancel this, but I said, you know what? I need something for me this week. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this podcast. Yeah, but you had your firecracker chicken this week. I did. I had the firecracker chicken. That's true. Yeah. That should have been enough for you, Joey. <laughs> Just a greedy... <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's go ahead and start into Facebook Find of the Week. Facebook Find of the Week goes out to listener Carbonite Man. Oh! For the uh, the little cartoon of the guy that is comparing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and fantasy football. An apt ob- observation if ever there was one. Yeah. Uh, uh, what would make it even more special if he was the one that actually wrote that cartoon? Yeah, I don't think he is. No, I, he, I don't <laughs> think he is either. But I, it, that would be funny if it yeah. was. Um. Yeah, and then he was. It sounded like he needed help on his. Uh, I think I may be in his fantasy football league. <laughs> yeah, didn't uh, uh, did Brainy, Brainy Smurf, Smurf set it up and set up a fantasy football league? But I don't know who any of the other people are. There, there's four of us in the league. I don't know if they're, if they're both other listeners. There got to be at least Brainy Smurf and you. There's Brainy Smurf and me. That's the only two people I know for sure. And I think Carbonite Man was there as well. Okay. I think he he posted something on Facebook and then Brainy Smurf said, "Hey, we're we're here for you." Yeah, that was to to that uh, um, thread. Yeah, so I, I it made me wonder. Oh, I think Carbonite Man must be one of the other two people in my league. <laughs> um, okay, so congratulations to you. We will send out some award possibly this week. Yeah, um, I I still owe uh, Brainy Smurf. Brainy Smurf an award. I think he'll be. I think he'll be. Excited for the award that he gets. <laughs> <laughs> what I find funny is the fact that uh, I, I was joking around with Fishhead this week because up until like Wednesday, he was the only thing that had, only person who had posted anything. So I was like, yeah, there's a really good chance you're going to win this week. <laughs> then, way to commit me there. <laughs> uh, oh well. Um, okay. Let's go into um, Brainy Smurf. Okay. He, uh, he begins, Congratulations to um, the grand opening of TreQuest V's newest embassy in the darkness of the periphery. The Brain Nation is pretty sure that although the corner has covered Asimov on multiple occasions, the foundation remains untapped. And thus, I propose as a sign of good faith that next week the <laughs> corner and the nook Collaborate to cover that legendary epic. I wasn't really aware that we needed a sign of good faith between us. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put out a, a, a sign of good faith with my own embassy. <laughs> Clearly, this governmental system is flawed. <laughs> I think that sounds like a fun idea. Okay, well, he continues on here. Um, I know that at least a few of the minions have Red Foundation as well. With our powers combined... We could provide a super awesome spoiler-free intergalactic dialogue, forming one giant whatever shape results from nooking a corner. I, <laughs> I will be focusing on the first book of the series, Foundation. So that leaves it open to you to choose from the other 15 books. I don't know how many are in the series. I, I, uh, I you know... It depends on how you define the series, because if you define the series as any book that takes place in the shared universe, I have covered the Foundation series. See, that's what I thought that you had. But I haven't covered the series that is a self-titled Foundation. 
So there are there's a whole shared universe that they all tie together, but there's one trilogy that is the foundation trilogy. Yeah, because I thought that the uh, the book that we read long, long time ago. Yep, the Caves of Steel. No, not Caves of Steel. The other one about the like the tungsten metal and those organisms and the people okay. on the moon. Yeah, you're talking about the gods themselves. Yes. That is not part of the shared universe. Really? Yeah. I thought that it was. No. I thought that that was part of the thing. Like, the the moon people, like, eventually secede and they decide to take the moon away kind of thing. No, that is not part of the, the Foundation series. Really? It's one of, the, one of Asimov's few science fiction books that has not been retrofitted into his shared universe. The Caves of Steel is. Huh. Really, really thought that you had said that it was. Like, because you talk about another book where, like, those moon people, like, they eventually say, hey, we're taking the moon away. Sorry, we're we're leaving with the moon. And, like, the Earth is left with the moon and... No? No? I don't know where you got that. The moon does rebel... Uh, in okay, okay. In thanks Foundation for series. thanks for like all of the silence there. You could have at least confirmed that. But much. they don't move it. Uh, it stays in orbit. <laughs> You're a jerk either way. <laughs> I'm willing to accept that. <laughs> uh, okay, so continuing on with his okay. email here. Additionally, I have an image that I can't shake of Joey biting the head off a lizard, except he is dressed like Ozzy Osbourne. Surrounded by leather, fog, and fire. Possibly future Facebook find of the week prize? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not going to commit to that. I'm just going to say... if I have to stage it. (laughs) I'm just going to say, I hope not. I really hope not. Um, Okay. But for this week's Nook of Darkness, we have the Cathars. Am I pronouncing that right? C-A-T-H-A-R-S? Sounds right. Okay. Is it by? I don't think it's a book. It's oh, okay. like about this group of people. Okay. There are many books about the extinct Cathars. I reference from the collective works of two scholars, Gerald Massady and Peter Stanford. Like many religious sects, the Cathars were eradicated mm-hmm. because of their belief in a transcendental outlook toward the universe never heard of them that is because they all died half a century ago how the catholic church sort of used the cathars as a trial run for nobody expects the spanish inquisition (laughs) is that something that needed a trial (laughs) well i i'm not sure that he's got this right because he says they all died a half a century ago which would just mean, like, in the 1950s. <laughs> like the, I don't remember the Catholic Church, like, brutally murdering. Maybe he meant half a millennia. But I'm hoping that's the case. <laughs> it's one of the lesser-known events of the late 1950s. <laughs> Pope John Paul was a lot bloodier than we give him credit for. Uh, it looks like... Uh, My apologies to any Catholics who listen to this. Uh, 1167 here. Well, he'll go on. He'll okay. uh, he says the Cathars were around in the 11th to 13th century, in parts of the Rhineland and northern France. They reviled the opulence of the Roman Empire and lived as a group of monastic celibate devotees who believed in renouncing the material world. 
This devaluing of the world of flesh served to limit the relevance of the material universe and in turn also significantly unpope the Pope's popeness. The, th <laughs> the, uh, the threat that the Cathars represented stemmed from their roots in Gnosticism. Which, by the way, that was very nice of him. to He put in a little ex, uh, um, um, definition, no, uh, pronunciation guide there. I actually knew how to pronounce that one, though. <laughs> yeah, he should have given it to me for Cathars. <laughs> and, and left out Gnosticism. <laughs> These dudes basically take the beginning of the Gospel of John super literally. The Logos created the universe with the utterance of a word. The belief system that resulted from Gnosticism, such as Valentinus beholds the physical world as a prison that prevents us from existing as pure energy. God can only exist in the realm of pure, and so the goal of Gnosticism is to basically achieve ascension, which would signify a pure union with pure love. This concept, of course, has also been translated into a rich palette of topoi through many channels of sci-fi. Just reference the word ascension, and it's everywhere in every medium. In Babby 5, even those crazy Vorlons have allegedly evolved into non-corporeal beings. JMS will propose in the season finale what mankind may evolve into. And so the eschatology of the Cathars was that by renouncing the physical world, they, would, they could transcend their bodies and exist as pure light. The, quote, big idea of last week's nookbook lullaby was what one was what would one do with the power to kill anyone without needing to deal with consequences in this week's chunk of babby 5 we see martian alfred has uh by the way that's edgar's in case anybody couldn't follow it i had to read that a few times like martian alfred who edgar's uh, has hatched a plan of genetic cleansing because of a threat from an admitted higher form of existence, sick transit telepaths. The box also represents a different threat uh, to EarthGov as a military hero whom they cannot kill. Similar to the plan that Garibaldi unearthed, the early medieval church actually succeeded in eliminating the Cathars. JMS has also previously noted that the Black Plague was strengthened by the ironic increase in rats, as cats were feared and killed because of beliefs that they were demons and such. Just as Clark's regime tries to turn the box into a symbol of intersections, the Black Cat was used as a propaganda symbol against the Cathars. Peter Stanford wrote, quote, this was because the devil appeared to be uh, to the Cathars as a cat. It was clearly a popular idea. The Bishop of Paris, an eminent scholar, claimed in the, in the 1230s, Lucifer is permitted by God to appear to his worshippers and adorers in the form of a black cat or a toad and to demand kisses from them, whether as a cat, abominably under the tail, or as a toad, horribly on the mouth. These descriptions also demonstrate how the Cathars' view of the world from the devil's work was confused in the popular mind and turned into rebellion against God. Close quote. Wow. Uh, from Peter Sanford's The Devil, A Biography. Which, by the way, 
that is a horrible idea. <laughs> like, the, the devil can make you kiss a cat's hind end or a toad's mouth. I, I, I'll take the toad's mouth. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, I'm a cat person, but there is no way I'm kissing anything under a cat's tail. Yeah, agreed. Um, he continues, As ludicrous as the ancient writings of some Frenchman bishop dude may seem, symbols are still powerfully embedded in our society in both positive and negative manifestations. From the eagles to the black cat. Rest in peace, Cathars. Uh, Holla! I wonder if that's where the term catharsis comes from. Uh, maybe. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you on that. It is interesting that... I wonder if the Bishop of Paris, who supposedly said this, and I'm, they quoted him, so I'm guessing it's of you know a written variety... I don't think they have him on file reading it. Um, I have DVD of it. <laughs> um, I wonder if like any of that's like taken out of context at all, mm. or if he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna write this down. This will be a pretty funny joke to send to my friend, you know, in the south of France." <laughs> and somebody got it, and they were like, "Oh my gosh, this bishop really believed this." It's the 1100s version of the uh, chainmail or something. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that is uh, the Nook of Darkness. Okay. Oh, sorry. The Nook of Darkness. Is that better? Yeah. No, right. no, no chuckle? Oh, I need a chuckle? Did I have a chuckle? I don't know. I, just, I always expect a voice like that to end in a, in a maniacal All right. chuckle. The Nook of Darkness. <laughs> Much better. There you go. Ah, Please. sweet. I got a gravelly voice tonight, so that worked out perfectly. <laughs> Okay, um, that leads us into Joey's Culture Corner. Redeem us with light and goodness, Joey. Les Miserables. Oh, what a <laughs> terrible, horrible thing <laughs> to think us through. Uh, Please, not the sewers. Not no, the sewers. No, uh, I don't know. Have you ever read it? <laughs> no. I, I have a copy of it, and I looked at it and thought, that's never going to happen. <laughs> never. And yet you'll read The Wise Man's Fear, which is about as long. Uh, no, I bet uh, it's better writing of, in Wise Man's Fears. And there's a, there's a lot more interesting Ooh. things happening. <laughs> <laughs> what? A man can have his opinion. Yep, yep a man can have his opinion. I didn't, um, I didn't say that uh, Victor Hugo was a crap writer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you did say that Patrick Rothfuss was a better writer. <laughs> For my taste, yes. Uh, I actually was referring though to the Broadway musical, uh, specifically oh. the oh, okay. specifically the complete symphonic recording of the Broadway musical. This is something you can get as a three disc set, mm -hmm. and it contains oh, three disc. I thought uh, the one I had was two discs. There's one that's a three disc set, and it is every single word of the play. I mean, you you are literally not missing a second yeah. of the play. It has mm -hmm. the continuous music all the way through and everything. Um, it was done by an international cast. Where they actually went around and they selected the uh, the most popular or what were at the time considered the best performers for each role out of all the casts that were running at the time. Well, that's a gutsy move. And then they had the uh, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra perform the orchestration. So they have, uh, I want to say they have a very, very thick British accent on Galroche and Thenardier. But nobody else has a has a British accent, which is kind of weird. You know, like, <laughs> the one um, I have, it's like predominantly 
British accents because I think it was done by like the London uh, group okay. of people who who had been doing it. Uh, and and the, the really interesting thing about this recording of it, I actually think it has the best eponine uh, out of all the recordings that I've heard, and. It comes with a little booklet, you know, talking about the process of going around the world and making all these different recordings and stuff like that. Well, the eponine is Japanese. Oh, wow. And didn't speak a word of English. And when she performed this, she traditionally performs it in Japanese. <laughs> what? <laughs> didn't know how to sing it in English. And so they actually had her wearing an earpiece, like an earwig, and they had the, a translator telling her in a microphone when you know what the words were and when to hold okay hold that note okay next note and, and she, so she's singing in English like completely dynamically as she's getting the oh word in her ear it's gosh. coming out her mouth why didn't someone just teach her English for that song well they were there for one day they're only in town for one day to record the song and they're like wait you don't, you don't know how to sing it in English? How do they... Oh, my gosh. How did someone not in, you know, in, like, uh, the production be like, Oh, yeah, yeah, she's from Japan. Um, yeah, maybe, she's only ever sung it in Japanese. Maybe so we I, gotta make sure she knows how to sing it in English, so... But, anyway, it's just an interesting story, and I think... I personally think it came out as one of the best versions... Uh, her version of On My Own, at least, I think is one of the, mo the most beautifully rendered ones. Does she... Um, does she sound like she's singing English? No, she does not. She doesn't. She okay, doesn't. Uh -uh. because that might turn some people off. There, there, are, there are some parts where I mean, she's basically just doing it completely phonetically, and so there are some parts where you're, you're kind of thinking, oh, she probably was supposed to hold that note a little bit longer, and she's just trying to figure out. Like you can hear her trying to figure out. How many syllables am I supposed to cram into this bar? Kind of thing. As she's singing. And that sounds good. It actually, I really like it. Uh, other, some people don't. You know what would be nice is if you could get a hold of a like a, a recording of that to, to share with people. Okay, I'll see if I can track one down. Okay. But, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, the, the big idea of Lame Is, for anybody who's not familiar with it, is it's a story of redemption and mm -hmm. hatred. And how these two opposing forces can pull us in in different ways in our life. Even though, you know, I, I think we can use Javert, one of the characters, as the classic example of doing the right thing for the wrong reason, corrupting the work, and it ultimately became self-defeating. He was trying to enforce the law, but the reason and the manner in which he chose to do so ultimately lead to him no longer having a moral compass of his own. Um, yeah, that's interesting that you, you take it in that direction I, for me the character of Javert is one who cannot understand forgiveness really for me that's who his character is he's absolute justice yeah and uh, which is sad for, for many many different reasons but um, yeah I uh, um, I love Les Mis I, I think it's fantastic I, I've you know listened to the uh, the recording many many times. We actually, I on Facebook, we had a few people posting up um, clips of it. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. I yeah. do remember that. Um, so okay, well good. Um, so that was Les Mis. You're you're gonna go ahead and give this a thumbs up. Thumb up. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Good. All right. Let's go into episodes then. 
into episodes. All right, we are going to cover episodes 17 through 20 of Babylon 5 Season 4, and we'll go ahead and start off with episode 17, The Face of the Enemy. Garibaldi turns Sheridan over to Earth Force, and we finally answer the question, whatever happened to Mr. Garibaldi? Yeah, we kind of do, don't we? Yeah. Um, okay, I think I like this episode. I think I really enjoy this. Um, I can do without the Edgar. Again, the Edgar's stuff is just so heavy. Yeah. It, you know, and nothing against the, the actor or against what they're trying to do, but it, it just doesn't mesh with the rest of the story that we're trying to tell right now. Uh, I was kind of annoyed the way they started it with this because once again we see Garibaldi is unhappy. <laughs> which seems to be his default position throughout the entire series. You know, he goes from manic to, like, just angry. Yeah. And uh, these sweeping motions are just... He's bipolar. Yeah, it just it gets <laughs> old after a while. Um, we have the Agamemnon comes yeah. and says, Hey, we want to... trying to catch up to you. <laughs> yeah, we want to join up with you. And... They invite him on to 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 a ship. As as uh, Sheridan here, would you go aboard the? No, Agamemnon? absolutely not. I wouldn't either. <laughs> There's just too many uncontrolled variables there. Exactly, because I mean, the ship shows up out of nowhere, and it's like, oh, completely fortuitous. Like this seems like a trap waiting to happen. This that right there seems like the trap. More than the, you know, hit, getting up with your. I, I think they actually, like, I think it's intentional a little bit. Really? I think so. Because they they cut from Garibaldi talking about, okay, you know, I'm, I, I'm putting the thing in motion where we're going to capture Sheridan. And then, boom, we cut to the Agamemnon catching up to him. And you're like, whoa, hey, wait a minute here. <laughs> and, and Sheridan's assertion is, well, that's my crew. I trained them. And I'm like, there's no possible way. Okay, first of all, let's just... Let's just grant the assumption that there's been absolutely zero staff turnover in the two years that Sheridan's been gone. <laughs> Seems unlikely, but okay, we'll, we'll grant it. You, you really think you had a personal relationship with every single member of your crew on that ship? Yeah. There was nobody that was disgruntled? Not a single guy that you pissed off in all those years? Yeah, yeah. I gotta imagine that there's somebody who's gruntled in there, for sure. <laughs> well, most uh, of them are gruntled. <laughs> What? There's nobody disgruntled. Well, but some of them might be gruntled. I think most of them are gruntled. Gruntled is a positive thing. Is it? Yes. Is it? Because when you become disgruntled, you're unhappy. Can you say that with certainty? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, by the law of words. <laughs> so, the whole part of Garibaldi's plan is, uh, like, weirdly put into motion by capturing Sheridan's father. Yeah. Like, was that part of Garibaldi's plan? Yeah. Or did they, like, capture him and they're like, oh, hey, we can use this to our advantage. No, he actually had told Edgars in the previous episode. Okay. Here's how you get to Sheridan. You capture his dad, and then you tell him, hey, let's go in and get your dad, and that's when that's when you arrest him. Okay. Um, so, let's see. I wrote a note. Telepaths on Mars, unauthorized scans, and projecting thoughts. Why did I write that? I don't know. You're the expert here about Babylon 5. <laughs> I'm not the expert about what you were thinking. <laughs> huh. Here's something out of the J. Michael Straczynski book. He says, I've been waiting 
for years to write and to shoot this episode. For that reason, I made sure that when it came up, that Mike Vihar was set to direct in rotation, so that he and he alone would touch this script. Not that our other directors weren't terrific, don't get me wrong, but as noted in prior volumes, Mike and I were practically telepathic when it came to how a given episode should look on screen. Of everyone who came through the directing rotation, Mike was my good luck charm. So there was no question that Mike would be the one to direct this one. He had my absolute trust. I say that so you will better understand what follows. When you shoot a series like Babylon 5, you have to knock down about five to seven pages per day. You absolutely need to depend on your directors to nail down this page count, because if they fell behind, then you are either looking at severe overtime costs, or more hideous still, adding an extra day to the schedule. Leaving aside the cost factor of adding an eighth day, our directors and sometimes guest cast were often available only from one specific date to the next. If we pushed by even a day or so, we might lose someone essential at the last minute. So you'll understand my horror upon returning to the stage at around 3 p.m. from the day spent in the editing room to be informed that Mike had shot just one scene to that point. More specifically, one part of one scene, which covered about only about half of a page. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> the, specifically, it's the scene in which several thugs take down Sheridan in the bar, which I describe in the script as similar to hyenas taking down a lion. I walked out onto stage A to find out what was going on, only to find the bar set completely torn apart, parts of it blackened by soot from an intentionally exploded light bulb, debris all over the place, and Mike grinning from ear to ear. Before I could even ask what happened, he said, Just trust me. We'll make up the hours later in the schedule. I've got it covered. <laughs> You're going to love what you see. Just do me a favor and don't look at it in the dailies. Wait for the first cut to come in. Joe, trust me. So I took a deep breath, waddled back to my office, kept the promise to avoid the next day the day to the next day to avoid dailies and waited a full 24 hours for the cut scene to arrive. If you're reading this book, it's because you're familiar with the show. So you know the scene I'm talking about. You know the sheer raw power of that sequence. When I saw it cut together for the first time, I was so stunned and flabbergasted that I ran out in the hall grabbing anyone within range saying, "Come in here quick, you got to see this." I brought it with me the next day into our production meeting for the next episode to show everybody in the crew what they had wrought just a few days before. To this day, it remains one of my top five sequences from the entire five-year run of Babylon 5. I, I cannot fault him at all. It is a fantastic scene. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, this is the scene where, where Garibaldi betrays Sheridan. Um, even down to the music that they choose, the lighting, yeah. everything works. And for once... They the have a choreographed fight <laughs> that is perfect. It's probably the best one we've seen in this podcast. Even to the point that they use the lighting to shield the hit yeah. that comes. So you don't ever actually have to groan and say, oh my gosh, he pulled like two seconds too early on that punch. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yep. I that think. was an incredibly good scene. And, and I think and I think having it blacked out when the punch <clears throat> actually lands mm -hmm. really adds to the emotional intensity, at least for me, as I'm, I just I get more and more on the edge of my seat as that scene goes along. <laughs> and then when he's down on the ground and they're all just kinda around him and going to town, I'm just like, Oh, Garibaldi, I can kill you right now. <laughs> uh yeah. Um Anyway, um, Sheridan's captured. Yeah. In a phenomenal scene. Um, so then uh, we have Sheridan puts Delenn in charge of Babylon 5. Yes. 
I was a little unsettled well, about this. The, the, the Minbari did pay for half of it. It was a joint. Okay. It was a joint venture. Every time I, when I think about Babylon Five, though, I think it is an Earth-controlled station. Earth certainly treats it as though it's an Earth-controlled <laughs> station, don't they? I mean, they're talking about like, oh, the taxpayers are paying for it and stuff like that. But it is a joint <laughs> venture between Earth and Minbar. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, I'll let that go then. Uh, let's see here. Edgar's is after the telepaths and has a insurance policy on them why did i write that i don't know were you thinking of the 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 disease the virus yeah because that's where it's really introduced isn't yeah, it it's, it's this genetically tagged yes. virus that will only harm people with the telepath gene and uh lease overhears that yeah his wife and she's unsettled now whoa which perfectly leads into <laughs> whatever um how about the giant tooth? <laughs> that thing's just like way too big. What's weird is how did Garibaldi know when the time was right to pull that out? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. And, and somebody's going to bring this up in, in the, the comments this week, but it, was that the whole plan with Bester all along to get him into Edgar's group? That's what we're led to believe, yes. And how does that? How does he manage to do that? Because it's he has to rely on Edgar's getting him in. Well, no, he was he. What they what they're what we're told to believe is that Garibaldi was programmed to go find a way to insert himself into the Edgar's organization. And so, huh. if you go back and watch when Garibaldi is really being a class A jerk, Wade is around and seeing it. And so he's kind of putting on a show for Wade okay. so that he will get pulled into the organization. Okay. All right. He wants so to join the biker game. <laughs> so uh, we have this. Uh, um, this um, we're finally told, you know, by Edgar's what the whole plan is, mm-hmm. and his whole reasoning is behind this is because telepaths are an unfair advantage. Okay. And for me. That just sounded like looter talk. <laughs> okay. Am I right? No, yeah, I think you're right. Because he was basically complaining like, oh, they have this advantage genetically now. And so, you know, they're, it's eventually going to come down to us versus them. And so we need, to, we need to jump out ahead of this. And so this is my way of doing it. But my question for you is, when it comes to the enslavement <clears throat> of the entire human race, is there anything you wouldn't do? I would love to enslave the entire human race. <laughs> so you're right. I'm sorry. Uh, please restate the question. I didn't understand. I, I'm saying to you know, in, in Edgar's mind, I think this. I think there's a logic here, which is, yeah, I may have to kill a few million people, but I'm going to save the human race for all of eternity as a byproduct. Right. Um, which is what I think uh, Sheridan has done through the entire war with the Shadow and, you know, the the war against Clark. Yeah. So th- it's hard to argue against logic like that. Right. It really is. Um, why is Sheridan key to Edgar's plan? Because they need Clark to back off. It, it's all about getting Clark to relax and settle, settle back. They all believe that if Sheridan is taken down, the attacks 
by the you know the rebel fleet if you will <laughs> will stop that, that it's all Sheridan this is all a cult of personality Sheridan is out there pushing everyone into this and if we cut off the head the whole thing is just going to collapse because it didn't really make sense for me if he's really after the telepaths if he hates the telepaths that much and wants to destroy them then just introduce the virus and be done with it well, it, that was only one step of his plan, though. I mean, the telepath thing was only part of it. It was the most horrific part, to be sure. Okay, then I misunderstood that, because that's really what I thought the whole thing was no, about. No, no, no. That was getting that was, the telepath. That was the piece that he was holding back. I mean, it was clear that he wanted to get rid of Clark. We already knew that. Getting rid of Clark was part of the program. It wasn't just this, this toss-away thing. It was a key component of what Andrews hmm. wanted to do. Okay, done. all right. And it was just that he was holding, you know, Garibaldi knew he was holding something back because Barrett Bester somehow knew and told the program the personality. Anyway. Yeah, that, that all works out so incredibly well. It's really tightly plotted. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bester comes back and we find out what Garibaldi's story is. Yeah. Um, we see a cameo with Harlan Ellison. He's the telepath who asks Bester, you don't want a full a full a personality wipe? That is Harlan Ellison, conceptual consultant and science fiction author. Who could himself use a full personality wipe. <laughs> from what you've told me about him. I, I worry. The guy, is, the guy is so active in stuff. I always worry that he's actually going to end up listening to this someday and that I've just made an enemy for life out of what is a very brilliant and creative man who I have admiration for. But he's just... Everything I've heard about his personality is that he's hard to get along with. <laughs> uh, I, once again, I have this note here, shoot on sight. Who, yeah, who Ivanova are... tells Babylon 5, if Garibaldi oh, tries yeah. to come back on Babylon 5, shoot him on sight. Yeah. Um, okay, quote, the person is expendable, the job is not. Agree? Disagree? If you're doing your job right, yes. Mm, I don't know. By that I mean, I have always been an advocate of saying you should never be completely reliant on one person for things to be successful. That person should always be cross-training everyone around them so that the skill set is always covered if that person is removed. All right, Joey, I'm going to need you to cross-train somebody. Um, in how to do the podcast? and how to do the podcast. <laughs> I keep trying to get you to come over here and look at what I'm doing. No, that I, I, I handle the other side of the podcast. <laughs> I need you to start training somebody for when you uh, eventually are killed. I mean, when you unfortunately die. <laughs> I mean, uh, are murdered by me. Um <laughs> Uh, okay, well, I can sort of agree with that to a degree. I mean, you know, the the President of the United States, one of the most important jobs in the world. But it's the job who is important, not the individual person. Right. And to raise the person up as like this banner, this triumphant thing, seems like the wrong thing. Yeah. In my mind, there's really only one person that fits in that regard, and that's, well, Jesus, and that's just because uh, I think he's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, the, the, I, I see what you were trying to go for at the beginning, though, which is to say, 
there are people who are very, very good at their jobs and are not replaceable as a result. Right, yeah. But, but like, like, as an example, Straczynski. Yes. Yeah, I, it seems like that guy's really critical to Babylon 5. Yeah, if you take Straczynski out of the equation, it probably would not have been much of a show. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are other good writers that could have done something with it, but we wouldn't have gotten what we got. Right. Uh, agreed. And that, that you're right, that was the area I was going into. Um, anyway, so Bester goes in and kills the Edgar's complex. So Edgar's is now dead, thankfully, and so is Wade, the um, professor of <laughs> literature and biker games. <laughs> I didn't realize he was a professor of biker games now. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Uh, that's all I have. Uh, did you want to cover anything? What happened to Lise? I don't know. It's something it that seems uh, like we're going to have to find out later yeah. on. It'll come up. Okay. If I had the bell over here, I'd ring it. John is unhappy about that, so we've stopped. My friend John Manson. I can't believe how much we kowtow to that man. Hey, he's one of our uh, uh, longest listeners. <laughs> Father of the podcast. We ought to listen to him sometime. Okay, let's go into comments then. We'll start off with uh, Brainy Smurf. He says, Strong intro. The episode is great if one omits every scene on Mars. <laughs> well, that's not fair. Because the, the capture of Sheridan happens on Mars. So, yeah. well, that's a pretty good scene. I also think the scene with Bester and Garibaldi is, is a critical scene to the character. Of I like Garibaldi. that we finally got it. Yeah. But, well, anyway, let, let me continue reading his okay. comments here. I like the whole, he is a double agent and he does not know it on Mars story um, the first time I heard it when it was the movie Total Recall. <laughs> I think that Garibaldi's argument about the box turning into a pharaoh made no sense. It would have been more pertinent and relevant in the distant future as the mythology of the box grows through the ages. JMS and the director, Vihar, provide a commentary in my DVD. They spend most of the time talking about the scene where the box is judas with the slow-mo and the strobe. They are really, really, really proud of that scene. Then, when Garibaldi is catatonic, JMS goes on to say that Doyle does his best work when he is doing nothing. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> you know, I've never watched the commentary. After we get done with this, I'm going to have to go through Babylon 5 again with just commentary on. That surprises me that you haven't done that. I've always been kind of saving it, you know? Okay. I always think, maybe I'll watch it now. No, I'll save that for another day. <laughs> <laughs> but why does Bester need to explain everything to Garibaldi? Great cameo for Harlan. Uh, but Bester's soliloquy is very contrived and superfluous. Rest in peace, Martian Alfred. Sci-Fi 8 TV 5. Um, Moneybags. Uh, let's see here. The Teep War. Why the sudden hatred between Teeps and the Mundanes? Now we hear mention of a telepath war? Is it just me, or is, it, uh, or is this coming from almost nowhere? Sure, we've seen distrust of telepaths and the Psycor, but an all-out war? Of course, the increased power given to the Psycor might be contributing to this, but it still feels like things have escalated a ton since we found out about Ivanova's mother in Season 1. Vester's plot. So the Shadows kidnapped Garibaldi to use him for their purposes. I had forgotten about this. 
and Bester modifies him to use as a spy instead. Did Bester know about Edgar's at this point? Yes. Did he know Edgar's had operatives on Babylon 5? I don't know the answer to that one. If not, what was he planning to do with Garibaldi? The the plan was for Garibaldi to find some way to insinuate himself okay. into the Edgar's organization and to leave it up to Garibaldi's natural resources and, and ability to do so. He obviously didn't care about capturing Sheridan. All in all, I still don't like this plotline. Garibaldi's accusations against Sheridan seem baseless. Sure, Sheridan does some morally questionable things after returning from Zaha Doom. It's wartime, people, and he's the commanding officer. Garibaldi. He's the decider. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Garibaldi's initial concern was Lorian. Well, Lorian helped. Uh, helped end the Shadow War and then bowed out gracefully. His next complaint is that Sheridan is going after Clark. Well, no one else is. Why didn't Edgars reach out to Sheridan directly and try to reason with him? If he had an actual plan for getting rid of Clark that didn't involve civil war, I'm sure Sheridan would have at least heard him out. I wish that this had been a real conflict. With Sheridan legitimately being out of line and Garibaldi not being able to control, uh, not being controlled by Bester. Hmm. This plot reminds me of a Star Trek. We can't have any real conflict, so let's have someone be controlled by aliens, parasites, whatever. TV six, sci-fi six. Okay. Nothing from Brainy Sharks this week. Um, oh wait, we read him first. First, sorry. I I, I'm, I'm tired, man. <laughs> Cut me some slack. <laughs> Pete, your science fiction reading. These aren't the droids you were looking for. Uh, I think that this is good. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of Mars stuff that's confusing. The whole Bester, uh, you know, reason for taking Garibaldi and, and using him just seems a little too easy. Uh, so I'm only going to give this a 7. I think it could have been more. I'm going to give it an 8. I think the genetically tagged virus at the time was absolute science fiction. It's now coming out to, to actually pay out. They are starting to do these things in laboratories where they can target a specific gene mm -hmm. with a virus. And so for that aspect and, and the fact that you know it's telepaths and Mars and things like that, I'm giving it an 8. Okay. Uh, for television, I'm going to give this a 7. And a large part of it is due to the scene where they take Sheridan. I'm with you 100%. That, that is really just phenomenal work for the Babylon 5 crew. Everybody involved on that. Yeah. So I, I give them a, a big bump. Se seven here as well. Yeah. The P5 rating is 9.26. Moving on to our next episode. Intersections in real time. There are four Lights! <laughs> oh, wait. Wrong episode, right? <laughs> wrong episode. <laughs> that, that was the summary I wrote. <laughs> All right. Well, we're out of time, so let's go ahead and move on to oh, ratings. Oh, I hate you so bad. <laughs> I, I don't know why you bothered to ask permission. I come downstairs, and he's like, hey, I, I'd really like to start off with, with reading from the script books. 
at the beginning. Like, oh, okay, how is that different from every podcast? Well, we don't always start off with the script books. When <laughs> yeah, I want it to be the first yeah. thing. <laughs> we, at some point, we cover an episode where you're like, I'd like to begin by reading something from the script books. <laughs> I always try to warn you when it's going to be the first thing. <laughs> what do you got? So this episode is documented in this book as a passing shadow. Here's what he says. It will not come to a shock, as a shock to anyone reading this book that I am a fan of the British TV series The Prisoner, which in my view may be the best TV series ever produced, including Babylon 5. Is that the one where they have, like, it was done in the 60s and the, like, weird bubbles yes. that come along? Okay, yeah, all right. right. I liked the claustrophobia of it, the surrealness, the blurring of the line between what is reality and what is manipulation. I've always wanted to write something that would play into that sort of universe, a pass, and a passing shadow was that opportunity. It would let me talk about the banality of evil, about how we can do the most monstrous things to one another, as long as there's someone there to say, it's not your responsibility. That when that the worst kind of cruelty is casual and businesslike and impersonal. But wait, I hear you cry, what's this passing shadow nonsense? Aren't we talking about intersections in real time? <laughs> well, let me explain. As well as playing into the prisoner's world of manipulation, I'd always wanted to write an episode that was designed to be shot and seen in real time. A play for television, one scene per act, just a couple of characters talking. And here I thought was my chance for one last shot at doing something experimental. It was our last season, so it wasn't like they could threaten to cancel us if this didn't work out. <laughs> we had nothing to lose. So with that in mind, I started writing the episode A Passing Shadow. But midway through the writing, as testified to by the script that appears in this volume, I chickened out. I questioned whether or not my writing was really good enough to sustain a teaser, four acts, and a tag, all in one room with two characters for nearly the entirety of the episode. The deeper I got into the script, the more insecure I got about the whole thing. See, I may come across sometimes as pretty confident in my work, but like all writers, there's a kernel of insecurity at the center of me that says, You suck. You can't write for sour owl, owl poop. You're a fraud and your mom dresses you funny. These thoughts have a nasty tendency to come out at exactly the worst moment. I slammed into that wall of insecurity at 90 miles an hour, bounced back, regrouped, and chickened out by cutting away to Garibaldi in the hands of the Mars resistance. It's dramatic counterpoint, I told myself. We see Sheridan being tortured by what we know are the bad guys. Then we see Garibaldi being tortured by our guys, raising the question again of who has the moral high ground. It's artsy and symbolic. It's rife with metaphor and meaning. What a load of crap. It was rank cowardice. Nothing more, nothing less. So with my metaphorical tail between my legs, I turned in the script. Everybody loved it. I nodded and smiled and said all the kinds of gracious things while inwardly kicking myself over and over. You had your chance to do what you always wanted, Joe. What you said you always wanted. And you backed out. You chickened out. And you'll never get the chance again. I was in hell. But I didn't change the script, and it was shot as written. True to the original intent, we decided to shoot the sequences with Sheridan as one-act plays. The more I watched the shoot, the more I was despaired of having made the of having made the choice I'd made. The scenes were so intense, so strong, and the performances were so terrific that I knew it would have worked as originally planned had I not gone the wrong way at the last second. I left the stage every day furious with myself. After seven days of self-recrimination and a host of invectives only fit for the Bible, we finished shooting this episode and turned our attention to the next one. 
Put it behind you, I thought. Move on. You've got the rest of the season to worry about, and you've got to get it right. A couple of days into shooting Between the Darkness and the Light, I got a call from the editor working on A Passing Shadow. I've got bad news, he said. The episode's running long. How long? Well, we're not sure yet, but it's probably going to be around seven or eight minutes long. <laughs> In order to make the Sheridan scenes work, the dialogue had to be given proper weight with pauses and silence. This expanded the time considerably. considerably. We rarely ran more than a minute or two over and could cut that down easily. Seven or eight minutes? It just couldn't be trimmed down. Whole sections of the scenes would have to be taken out. And since the Garibaldi scene was very dynamic and didn't lend itself to trimming, those seven to eight minutes would have to come out of the Sheridan interrogation scenes. Which would destroy them. More self-recrimination and invective. I was not a happy man to be around. A few days later, while I was still trying to figure out what to do, I got a call from another editor who was inputting the dailies from between shadow and light. You may want to write another scene to shoot in this episode while we still have all the principles, he said, because we're running short in this episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. Great, I thought. Just swell. One episode's too long and now the other one's too short and that... Wait a minute. <laughs> How short, I asked. Well, if everything else comes in where it looks now, we're going to be way short. About seven to eight minutes. Every so often, just once in a great while, you get that little shiver up your back that tells you the universe has just interceded you to save you from your own misjudgments. <laughs> because the Garibaldi scene was complete unto itself, I told the editor to grab the video's files for passing and graft that sequence into the episode he was working on. And to let me know at the end of the week how the whole thing timed out. I spent the next four days in absolute suspense waiting to find out if this was going to work. Finally, the call came from editorial. You're not going to believe this, he said. When we move the Garibaldi stuff across the episodes, the two shows not only time out correctly, they time out to the second. <laughs> to celebrate, I retitled the episode Intersections in Real Time. Nice. Very interesting, I thought. Yeah, that is. Because this, this is a great episode. I, I, I wrote the funny summary, but I think this you put this up against uh, Chain of Command, and I think, I think it fares favorably. I don't think it beats Chain of Command. I don't think it beats it. I think I think but they are I in the same class. The um, the the other actors that they brought in for this were great actors. My my first note uh, in here is that I like the you know interrogator slash reprogrammer Bruce Gray. Uh, Bruce Gray. Yep. Yeah, I, I thought that he brings a level of creepiness <laughs> uh, and even annoyance. That is just captured perfectly with that character, which is what you would expect in a scene like that. I think it's his his business like approach to torture. <laughs> how how does that not freak you out? That you're, the person who's torturing you is just like, nah, I don't really care either way. This is just my day job. I don't take it home with me at night. Yeah, what's funny is like I, this isn't personal with me. Look, I, I'm just doing this as a job here. You've got to understand. I don't care one way or another for you, which is like contrasted so well like later on when he's just getting so like he's frothing yeah he's so angry about this and like no okay that you're someone who's actually invested in this pretty hard uh and it was it works it, it really just does work quite quite well the uh you know there's there's one thing about the episode that it's just he's constantly telling sheridan i've never lied to you i've said nothing but the unvarnished truth since i walked in here and yet good morning Bam, turn the light on. Really? <laughs> I mean, like, you're doing nothing but lying to the guy and then trying to buy, get him to buy into 
Yeah. Yes. This is the truth. Yes. And th- that comes down to his whole argument, which is truth is fluid. Truth is subjective. subjective. Ayn Rand is rolling in her grave somewhere. <laughs> Isn't that just exactly the opposite of what Ayn Rand is all about? Um, I, I What I did like, though, the introduction of these ideas, is I think he even mentions in there that he says, perspective is everything in this. Sure. You know, what's true now might not be true later on, which is, you know, a, it's a coward's way of, you know, going through logic. Just by, you know, changing circumstances and, you know, suddenly everything is is one way. But in the West Wing, remember, we, President Bartlett was constantly tortured with this idea of, look, there are absolute truths. There are moral truths out there. And, or sorry, he called them moral absolutes. Right. Which is just another way of saying truths, in my opinion. Um, And so it, it made me starting to think, okay, there's a difference between truth and like uppercase capitalized yes. truth. truth. Yeah. And I, I think those are what, you know, Bartlett would call the moral absolutes out there. And while, you know, this guy, this interrogator, did he have a name? I can't remember. We never get a name for him. Okay. Um, it, he may have, you know, told the truth, but he was screwing, you know, the big truth yeah. all along the way. Sure. In his in his idea of trying to break Sheridan, he was just doing horrible, uh, unspeakable things to the truth. Yeah. Uh, and, and I liked that. I liked that a lot. There was one part of the exchange that I particularly enjoy every time I watch it. You've been interrogated before. Yes. Anyone I know? You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Referring, of course, to Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, just, you know, no matter how many times I watch this, I, th- there's one part to me that makes this more dramatic than Chain of Command in, in, in one aspect. And it's that it is humans doing this to humans. It, mm-hmm. It's, okay. you know, because it's, it's very easy for me, for some reason in my brain to say, yeah, these guys are the Cardassians and they're just bad people that, you know. But this is just a human being. And the idea that as human beings we can treat each other this way makes it just a little bit more horrifying to me. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's one being to another. Okay. Whether it's uh, you know what you would consider a sentient being or not, you know, the torture of an animal, I would still consider that you know, right along the same lines. I mean, granted, you're not going to be interrogating you know, a cow... <laughs> To try and gain some information about the pasture grass. Like, why are you holding out on me? Tell me, dang you. <laughs> but still, nonetheless, I mean, it's someone who's doing these terrible, horrible things. I just, I'm, all I'm trying to say is that I, I fully believe that a human would do that to another yeah, human. I agree. I agree. It's just that when it was, when it was a different race and I was watching it and it was a, a very alien looking being that was doing it, I didn't connect with it emotionally to the same extent. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the Drazi. Yes. First of all, when the Drazi shows up, my, the first thing I wrote was, a Drazi alibi? Really? The Drazi aren't to be taken seriously. We know in, in this universe, <laughs> nobody takes the Drazi seriously. Isn't that just an indication of how insular Earth has become, though? Is that they don't even understand... 
the Drazi's role in the Galactic. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, like that is just how That's far off dude. Earth is. That they're like, oh yeah, look, there you go, we got a Drazi. Did you did you notice who plays the Drazi, by the way? Uh, I know that Wayne Alexander does. Yeah. He doesn't look like Wayne Alexander, though. <laughs> like, but, at no point would I look at that guy and think, oh, that's no different from any of the other Drazi that I've seen dressed right. up. Like, the costume is so incredibly changing. I just didn't know if you caught the voice. He, he uses the same vocal characteristic for... No, I still heard Drazi voice in all of that. Okay. I didn't get Jack, and I didn't get Lorian okay. in, in, in any of that. So, it, it, honestly, I, I know this might be insulting to you, but it could have been anyone inside that Drazi suit because I didn't see anything stunning out of the performance. Really? I didn't. Okay. okay. When he when he collects himself and and gets his spine back, so to speak, I, I look at that and I say, it's clear to me that J. Michael Straczynski, whenever he has a character that has a certain kind of emotional strength, he reaches for Wayne Alexander. Hmm. Maybe. Um, okay, a question though. At the very end, uh, maybe we're jumping ahead, <laughs> but we see the Drazi again. So yeah. you know, it, we're t- we're led to believe the Drazi is going to be taken off to room seventeen, and he's killed, or at least we're led to believe that he's killed because the lights suddenly dim and you hear screaming and and whatnot. And Sheridan sees him. Yeah, is this a hallucination by Sheridan? Or is this the Drazi whom the interrogator was using to screw with Sheridan? J. Michael Straczynski, to my knowledge, has resisted answering that question. Really? Why? We're supposed to just take it for whatever it means to us. Okay, well that's annoying. (laughs) I need to punch Straczynski in the mouth for that. Um, uh, Okay, so... I, I love, you know, the conversation between Sheridan and the Drazi, though, where he says, you know... He talks about, you only have to say, no, I won't, one time, mm-hmm. more than they say, yes, you will. Yeah. You, what, what a thing to hang on to in that moment, you know? Exactly. Because I think the integrity is like, you know, you can't beat the system. Or no, it was the Drazi who was saying that. No, you can't beat the system. And then this, you know, Sheridan saying, you can. Every time you say no, you beat them. Yeah. And you just continue to say no and make sure that you say it at least one more time then they have said yes, and then you win. Yeah, that was actually the interrogator who said. Was that, it? Yeah. Okay. It was what the what I, the interrogator said. What, what what happened was Sheridan said, "You can fight the system because we were taught. You're you're saying it's the one inviolate truth of our time, but you were just telling me that truth is fluid. So maybe you can." And the interrogator's question is, "Yeah, but can you win?" And Sheridan's response is, "Every time I say no, okay. I win." Yeah. And so I just thought, you know, if if you're if you're there and you're in that environment and you're thinking. How many times am I going to have to to go through this? How many times? How long am I going to be here before they finally kill me? And, and if you thought of it that way, it would be so demoralizing. And yet to think of it the way that Sheridan does, it, I think it would be strengthening to say, "I only have to say no this time, and I don't worry about the other times. I don't worry about how many times I said it before. I don't worry about how many times I'll have to say it again. I just say no one time every time they ask me yes." Yeah. Um... What I think is cruel is eating in front of a starving man. <laughs> Honestly, that's got to be one of the most cruel things. And thankfully, we see uh, uh, Bruce Boxleitner 
I, he kind of plays with that as the guy pulls out the uh, the pastrami sandwich. <laughs> He's like, oh, <laughs> oh, sandwich. That is great. Uh, and you know, it ends up being poison. <laughs> poison in the sandwich. <laughs> Uh, that that was pretty. Uh, I like pretty good. you know that that also you know, the the level of cruelty there is to say, we're not going to let you die of starvation, but we want you to have no solid food in your stomach because it doesn't matter how many calories you get by intravenous n- nutrition, if your stomach is empty, it feels yes, you feel hungry. Yeah, it feels terrible. Yeah, and it, the intravenous uh, solution. I mean, really, all that does is just sustain life. Right. It doesn't give you any sort of great set of calories to continue to allow you to, to do anything. When they showed him, you know, getting up off of the floor after the night of apparently, you know, retching his guts out, and he's like completely, de- you know, not delirious, but weak. Weak. That's so true. Yeah. Anybody who has spent, you know, a, a, a day with the flu knows that you you can't just pop up. <laughs> After you've you know retched everything up out of your gut, you know it, it's going to take a toll on you. And I was pleased to see that the, they made it so. I don't have anything else to talk about. Good good episode. Listener comments. Okay, we'll go with uh, money bags first. Intersections in real time. Great episode. The only complaint I have is the ending, where the interrogation process resets. By having the next interrogator use the exact same process, I feel like it takes something away from the original interrogator character. Instead of using his own nefarious process that he's come up with, he's just using a script provided by the Ministry of Peace. (laughs) TV 8, Sci-Fi 8. I'm going to disagree with that a little bit. Because I think that it's a tactic that's designed to break your will. You know, Sheridan has made his decision. Like, no, I, I, I don't care. I am not backing down uh, off of this. I will not help you. I will not participate with you. And you can do whatever you want to me. Okay, take him off to room 17, guys. So they put him on the thing. They wheel him down there. And he gets put into this room. And he's preparing to die. And he's, you know, mentally he's supposed to be prepared and thinking, I've won. I've beaten them. I managed to outlast. They're just giving up and going to kill me. And then it starts all over again. And it's like, oh, what? No, I had won. (laughs) You were going to kill me. I I do see a little bit about what Moneybags is trying to say where it makes it seem less like it's this one interrogator that just has this really diabolical scheme. But I think it makes it all the more evil to say, this is something they've scripted. (laughs) Like, they're churning out... They have a, they have a interrogator factory somewhere, and they're <laughs> you know you, you go to your standard set of interrogation training courses, and you come out and do these horrible things to people over and over again. I think that makes it for me just a little bit more of a dismal reality. Uh, the character of Saeed from Lost, uh, I, I think about him. Yeah, in, in in situations like this, that's what he was. Except he, you know, he got a little. He got his hands a little more dirtier than, uh, than these guys did. Um, okay, the Brainy Smurf. Firstly, I must say that like monkeys copulating at the zoo, this episode is grotesque, but it is hard to stop watching. 
Whether or not one hates this episode, the box's performance is as nucleo-gravitational as it is stunning. JMS gets all sorted and cerebral. And welcome back, Jack, as a drowsy double turncoat. So he sees him as, uh, you know, part of the plan, I guess. Uh, I wish that the Inquisitor could have been more compelling than surrender to the mysterious shallow regime of umbrella totalitarianism. (laughs) Rest in peace, random drowsy. Oh, wait, he's back. The revival reveal of Drazi Dude as he takes off the hood would have been much more effective if Wayne could have held a stoic face and not smirked. Additionally, one can't help but draw comparisons to not only Chain of Command Part 2, but also another similar story that is endlessly more salient, A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Intersections is a great episode, but... If the box were to be converted into a Clark supporter, he would be giving up the many ideals that have been expressed as something that Earth used to stand for and the reasons he signed up in the first place. I do not understand one thing. What does Clark's regime stand for? Do they even have a flag? Even the Drazi have a flag. <laughs> Thoughts, man? What do they stand for? Yeah. Power for the sake of power. Okay. Okay. I, I, I don't know of any flag, though. <laughs> um, I bet they're probably just using the same one. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, eh, well, wait, you really are taking over. You've given us a new flag. <laughs> Could be. During the 20th century, many martial law dictatorships have arisen. There are too many to list. But every successful dictator establishes symbols which become attached to ideals to fight for or some belief in the greater good. I just think it would be have been interesting if the Clark side could have made a compelling argument like Justin did for the insert 10,000 letters here. <laughs> so in conclusion, when is it right to fight the system? It is right when the box does it, but wrong when hippies do it. <laughs> Hippies? I think he might be referencing the uh, the whole boycott of Wall Street that's going on right now. You haven't heard about that? Uh-uh. Like Occupy Wall Street? No. Seriously, have you been under a rock? Well, this week, yes. It's been going on for a few weeks. Yeah, I haven't heard anything about this. Yeah, there's been like scuffles with the police as well, where they they like now have cases of police brutality because of it. Like, policemen just spraying people randomly with pepper spray. <laughs> and they've got it on tape. It's ridiculous. So they're out at Wall Street parading around. Yes. Huh. Okay. And they don't seem to have any uh, theme Agenda? other than, Hey, life is bad. Wall Street's to blame. Make everything better. <laughs> Honestly, that's like... And they even say, Yeah, we're not really sure where this is going, but it's time we stand up and say enough is enough. Well, at least they're not trying to sell racist cupcakes. jeez. <laughs> well, Thank you, Stanford. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking that's what okay. he's referencing here. Sci-Fi Zero. Wow. TV Nine. So, apparently didn't think that was uh, sci-fi-y enough. I don't know. Uh, Joey, what do you think for science fiction? I give it a six. Um, you know, I, I think that the... If you, if you break down the, the... I'm trying to remember what they call them now. 
the ways you can write a story. <laughs> There's a term for it that I can't think of. But it's man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. Man versus man is is genre. About, it's not genre, but yeah. you're, you're in the right your neighborhood there. I actually almost said the word genre and realized that's not quite right. But uh, the conflicts. Where, where is the conflict? This is this is a, a man versus man is a completely valid science fiction conflict. This is mm-hmm. take our our worst propensities to the extreme and put them up there on display. I, I think this does a a good job of that, but not great. So I'm giving it a six. I disagree. I think that this is actually really good. Uh, I give this an eight. Uh, I think that a lot of the themes that are discussed in here are specifically science fiction. Yes, the global idea and theme is I'm trying to break you, and I'm you know let's watch and see what happens to this man if he gets broken or not. But it's done within yeah. the Babylon Five world, and it's all about that whole structure. Um, so I think that it was okay. uh, thematically done well. Okay, for television, I give this an eight. This is really good stuff. I have to say, for me, the part that is just it, it always gives me I don't know if the chills is the right word, but it, it makes it makes my stomach kind of turn when I realize just how insidious of a thing it is to do to someone is when he walks in the room every time he walks in the room says good morning, and then turns on the light. Like there, there's just something. Really, really evil in the way he's hmm. trying to change the definition of truth. For this, in the scope of that room, truth is what I say it is, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell you. And it's, it's all after that big conversation they have about you know, oh, you thought that was daylight? Oh, in here the truth is fluid. Da da da. Well, he always comes in in darkness, says good morning, and then turns the light on. Yeah, that, that's why I would say that uh, uh, the chain of command stuff has done so much better with the four lights thing. That is such a strong presentation uh, as an evil person trying to clearly manipulate someone. I, I like that better. Um, I really enjoy this from a television perspective. The I might give it an eight with you because I think the acting is strong. Mm-hmm. I think the scene is shot well. Lighting is good. Everything works. Unfortunately, I I think you need some of the backstory behind Sheridan to truly give it, um, you know, such a solid uh, push. Okay. So I'm only going to give it a seven. Still, like, really high. I think it's a, yeah. a, a, a super job. And I honestly, I love that interrogator, Bruce Gray. I, I thought he did a tremendous job. They did a great job in finally casting <laughs> some extra to come in and do a good job. Okay. Um, P5? P5 rating is 8.08. A surprisingly low one, in my opinion. Moving on to our next episode, Between the Darkness and the Light. Garibaldi, Franklin, and Lita rescue Sheridan. Ivanova is mortally wounded. Uh, Okay. I I like this episode. It's good. Yeah. Got some good battle scenes. I like that we get a little bit of... A tiny bit of redemption of Garibaldi's character here. Yes, agreed. Uh, I think if he had bled to death from that wound in the back in this episode, it would have been a better redemption of the character. You think so? I think so. Let him die, Let and him die. That's, he sacrificed himself yep. to make up for his mistake. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I personally want to see a healing between he and Sheridan. I want to see Sheridan kind of come through and say, hey, look, I'm really sorry. We said a lot of horrible things to each other. I'm still your friend. 
that you know for me as a, as a person watching this series that's what I want to see okay so I it would make me sad to see Garibaldi leave and not get that wrapped up okay because then that's just you know that's one more thing that Sheridan has to carry emotionally and I gotcha. think Sheridan needs to be able to to let that go okay maybe he already has maybe he just doesn't <laughs> care but still that's as someone watching that's what I want to see I, I just felt like with what they had done to the character at this point, killing him would have been the nicest thing they could have done to him. I guess it, it would have been the easy way out for the Garibaldi character. It, it's going to be hard to have to watch. I, I, it's just... I, in fact, I, 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 I'm trying to be careful about not saying too much, but just let's just hypothesize and say, okay... Why do we have to say anything at all? I say just let it go. Let what it go. happens, happens, what Joey. Happens, happens. We will deal with it. We will move on. <laughs> and you will be struck down. <laughs> um, okay, so we have more Sheridan stuff. They've decided to take the reprogramming to the next level. Yeah. <laughs> They're like <laughs> chemically screwing with this guy now. <laughs> it's terrible. I like what the guy says. He says, we don't want cooperation. We want conversion. Yeah. We want repentance. Like, they're going, they're not just looking for him to admit that he was wrong here. They really want him to be vocally on the side of Clark's campaign. Which leads me to to ask, why didn't they just use telepaths? It's clear that Clark and the Psychor seem to have, like, some sort of connection together. Uh-huh. They're, they're working together. Why don't they just call in a telepath because and reprogram him? For the same reason that it didn't work on Garibaldi, when Lita actually went looking in Garibaldi's mind, there were things there for her to find to discover. Yeah, but the only people who were gonna, who would be able to find that out, are the Psychor, or, or Lita, or other races that they may eventually want to bring in line, and use Sheridan as a tool for that. Hmm. I, I don't know. It it just it seems like they could have just used the telepaths and made life easier on themselves. I feel that way. Okay. Anyway. And you know that's my belief, so that means that's the truth. <laughs> that's what they interrogated. The tru- truth is fluid. Yeah. Um, okay. So Garibaldi's captured. Which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but they re-showed the same scene when. Um, uh, 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 Franklin comes up and he's like, "No, I want to do this here." And he like rips the the mask, the hood the off hood. of uh, Garibaldi. Like, and then you know Garibaldi starts talking, and then in the next scene we come back and the hood's back over Garibaldi, and Franklin is like turning again, and it was the exact same scene. No, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I had to. I flipped back to to rewatch huh. that, and it absolutely is the same scene. They may have edited that out in the version that I have. Maybe. But mine are the DVD ones, so yeah. I would think that they would have cleaned them up for the DVD. Um, <laughs> well, this, those are the first edition DVDs. I mean, they so they're the it. purest. Uh, they're the closest to original broadcast that mm. you can get. Unless you actually recorded them on VCR. <laughs> uh, okay, Lita scans Garibaldi. Yeah. Finds out that he has been under control... And she breaks the level 12 Psychor blocks. After going all shadow-eyed. And then she's like, don't mess with me. <laughs> and then she projects 
Yeah, I didn't know they could do that. I, I didn't know, know either. either. I was like, that was wait, always a question. Wait, they could download other people's memories into you? Why aren't we using this as a training manual? <laughs> That's why I think that it's something that only Lita seems to have the the ability to do. It's one of the Vorlon add-ons? Yes. <laughs> Aftermarket package? Upgrades. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so they end up believing Garibaldi because she projects his thoughts into number one and she's like, oh my gosh. That is terrible what happened to you. I believe you totally now. <laughs> yeah. We'll help you out, but only limitedly. <laughs> we're only going to give you one person, really. Yep. And we're um, only going to take you so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we cut away at some point, and we have the, uh, 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 the Earth... How are we distinguishing good guys and bad guys? What are they calling? Clark people and... Sheridan Babylon people? 5. Babylon 5 people. Okay. So we have Babylon 5 fighting Clark stuff. And the thought that I had was that Sheridan was just slowly working his way through our solar system. You know, he's just going through, cleaning things out, you know, freeing people in, in various places and trying to get more people to join up with him. Okay. That's what I am, that's what I imagine is what's happening. So this fight happens, but we see in the background this nebula. And so I, it's like, no, there's no nebula in our solar system. They wouldn't be next to this. It wouldn't be in the background anywhere. The only way you see that is if you look through some, you know, Hubble telescope <laughs> thousands of light years away yeah. to be able to see this. Right. So I wanted to ask the question... Is this happening all within the solar system? And this is just no. like the art department just kind of said, hey, it'll be fun. Let's just throw that in there so it's not a black background. No, this is happening all over the galaxy. Really? Yeah. I mean, it started at Proxima 3, which is nowhere near our solar system. Really? That was the first battle of this of this little war, the civil war that's going on. Okay. It's Proxima 3, which is like light years away from our solar system. Okay. All right, well then, I, I appreciate you explaining that for me, because I, I was really confused. Uh, the League of Non-Aligned Worlds votes to take action in this. You mean, finally grows a, a backbone, a spine, <laughs> takes a stand? Uh, the, you know, this scene always touches me. I, I realize that I'm probably alone in that, but the idea that what Sheridan did in the Shadow War made such a difference to these people that they can overcome their natural tendencies... That we know about them for four years now of how they behave as a group. And for Londo, of all people, to be the one up there impassionately speaking, <laughs> we should put our necks out for someone else. Yes, organizing. It, it, it was amazing. And it always it always gets me choked up a little bit. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that, coward. <laughs> I'm sure you were going to go for sissy. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said sissy. Coward doesn't really make sense, does it? Uh, okay, then we cut back into the Mars thing, and we have one person leading the the yeah. team in, and they Lita goes on some stupid rant. You don't like the little comedy routine. I knew. It. I wrote down. Oh, I, I said Franklin, Lita, and Garibaldi doing a little comedy routine in the access tunnels. Pete is not going to enjoy this. <laughs> it was so dumb. It was a little bit dumb. The gulp versus sip, and then Lita going into I'm going to sue someone. 
I, I'm suing someone over this. I don't know who it is, but yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, I, I wrote capital letters, bold. Can you see from over there? Stupid. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't pleased by that I knew scene. you wouldn't be. Okay. Um, but I love the irony. Garibaldi gets stabbed in the back. <laughs> <laughs> How is that? <laughs> that, was, that was just like, that is perfect right there. That is just perfect irony. Garibaldi got stabbed in the back. <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice is if someone in the background could, you know, just hold up a sign and say, How does that feel, Garibaldi? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, we come to find out um, that uh, Ivanova, you know, uh, we're seeing into um, the the fleet who's moving through. Some guy comes aboard, and he's like, he has information. He's, he basically says, "Look, there's spies in here. They're laying a trap for you, and they have upgraded ships. I haven't seen them, but I've just heard about them. And like, you guys are gonna get the crap beat out of you. Yeah. So be careful, be prepared. Um, and so she decides." Um, that she's just going... She's not going to take in the Earth fleet. Right. She she's going to be the White Star. Just the White Stars to take these on because she doesn't want to risk losing the entire fleet over this. So, um, she decides to to take in, and then we see the new fleet come in. Yep. Which is a hybrid of shadow vessels and... Earth vessels. Earth vessels. Yeah. Which so, is, I, I, yes, I like the I like the idea that you know we've merged, but the, the ships execution. look a little goofy. Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't the best. Like seriously, I love the idea of putting that together. Like, okay, we've managed to hack into the shadow vessels, and like you know we kind of understand how they work, and we're going to start throwing this together, and we've managed to do it within a couple of years to create these ships. But the payoff is yeah the the, the CGI un, unsatisfying is, for me. I, you know, I bet if we were going to see more of these, if we had had the full season and a half or you know three quarters of a season long Civil War, there probably would have been more work done on these. But they're only mm. used in this one scene, and so they probably were just kind of thrown together <laughs> and rendered and put. Hey, out I there. know. Let's just uh, so, uh, put a shadow ship right in the middle of uh, the Earth ship. <laughs> I have the you know the, the spines coming out. That'll look cool. <laughs> oh well, like I say, I like the idea, but it just you know, it didn't. But I love that what we're seeing here. I don't know if, if you put this together. Is we're seeing a combination of Minbari and Vorlon technology fighting a combination of human and shadow technology. <laughs> okay, sure. I you know it, it's. The microcosm of the Shadow War playing itself out yet again. It's an echo of that great war that happened for thousands of years. Even though the Shadow and the Vorlon have both left, this you know they've gone beyond the rim, the echoes of that war are still here and are still impacting us. You know what I think? They, they really ought to go back to... You remember when they showed the, uh, the Vorlon outpost getting destroyed by the White Stars? Uh-huh. Like they really had to go back to that outpost and, and like just tech? start taking tech all over the place. Like, <laughs> okay, we claim this spot as Earth Alliance. It's ours. <laughs> Nobody touch. Uh, anyway, so we get in. Uh, Ivanova gives some cheesy speech. Yeah, uh, he he's, he he talks in the script book here about how it's supposed to be Ivanova's version of 
Only one human captain has ever faced him in Bayek's yes. fleet. I got that same feeling. But, but the execution on Claudia Christian's part does not match that of Mira Agreed. Yeah. It, it's just, I, I honestly, I think the the speech itself maybe even can, can could be held up just on the quality of the speech. But the acting, we just see here the gap that there is between Delenn and Ivanova as actresses. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, but that does not take away from any of the fact that this is a very cool battle yeah. <laughs> that we get to see. And there is an impact on the White Star. Yeah. Uh, flying through, you know, the heroes don't always come through unscathed. Um, Nobody in this universe is safe. Straczynski has always said that. Yeah. Uh, one, one interesting thing that I, we kind of skipped over here but that I thought about is... I think it's well known that I am addicted to sleep deprivation, I think you could say. Um, it just seems to me that it, with a person going into battle, that you would just say, I should just get as much rest as I can. You grab sleep whenever you can get it, yeah. when you're literally in the middle of a war. How do these people, I just, I don't know. I, you like your sleep a lot more than I do, I think. You know what I would love? What would be absolutely hysterical for me is if you were a, a um, if you had narcolepsy, <laughs> like you hate it so much, but you have absolutely no control over it whatsoever. <laughs> it would be like the worst torture ever. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Well, that's just what I. That's what came to mind. Um. Anyway, Ivanova gets jacked up really bad, and it's basically there. She's gonna die. Yeah. Her. There's no way to heal her. She's going to die. Um, and she tells Sheridan, I have one request. What is it? Not what. Where. She tells him, I want you to command this, the end scene. I want you to do it from the Agamemnon. Right. I don't want you doing it from a White Star. Get on board a human ship and, and do it from there because we are humans taking this back. Yep. So. Uh, what, what an interesting scene here that... that stands out to me is the interaction between Sheridan and Delenn when they first meet up again uh, after Sheridan's been tortured and all these things that we know yeah it would have been nice if she could have given him a vigorous handshake or something <laughs> well, let, let me just start but that's by... just me I'm partial to handshakes from women so uh, in, in the script book Straczynski says in editing this episode we'd originally shot the scene with Sheridan just shooting the guard once during his escape but when the footage was assembled and readied, I realized that the shots didn't exactly match up and that we could, in theory, edit in each one of the cuts so that Sheridan doesn't just shoot once. We could make it look like he shoots the guard a whole lot, even after he's likely dead, <laughs> without it being obvious that we were using the same angle. So that's what we did. Although the script does not reflect this, the result makes Sheridan look as scary in his way as Ivanova has looked in hers. So when he's asked, are you okay, afterward, it goes from a moment of concern to a nervous laugh <laughs> because Sheridan is a long freaking way from being okay uh, so he, he meets with Delenn and Delenn you know she kind of gives him this look or I, I can't remember what he's responding to I think it's just a, a facial expression when he says it wasn't that bad I'll talk about it when I'm ready yeah so there, there's a corollary here for me um, when there was some stuff going on with my leg in the past year and a half or so, 
Uh, initially, there was some concern that it might be cancer. I think I might have shared that mm-hmm. with you, Yeah, you did. And the first person I called when the doctor told me that, I went out and I sat in my car and I cried, literally, because I thought I had cancer. I thought I was going to die. And I called my mom. It was mm-hmm. the first person I called to say, Mom, the doctor says he thinks I have cancer, and I don't know what to do. And talked to my mom for maybe five, ten minutes. Not, not a long conversation, but just to kind of dump on somebody because I, I needed to get it out. I never told my wife that. I never told my wife because I waited for I, a diagnosis. I remember, I remember that. And I remember thinking, I don't agree with you. I never told you that. but I, I If they had come back and told me it was cancer, I certainly would have gone to my wife and said, hey, it's cancer. But where they just thought it was and they didn't know... I thought about okay. Here's my reaction to it, and uh, yeah. and out yeah, of the I, two I, I of know us, what, I know what Dee Dee's reaction. Would I be. handle things like this much better <laughs> than she does, and that was my reaction to it. And so I just thought she is just gonna fall apart if I tell her this. So I just thought, you know, when they said, okay, it's not cancer. We found these other things that are going on, and I thought, great, you know, never have to have that conversation with my wife. Wonderful. This past weekend, my mother was staying with us. Told my wife. Oh no! No no no! Months ago, and told my mom that I think I might have cancer, and my wife was furious with me. Oh yeah, I bet she was. (laughs) She she she's still mad at me about this. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, you should never. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Why do I know you better than your mother? (laughs) What is wrong with this here? Um, but yeah, the, so, you know, her contention is that I, I should, that I don't share things with her. That's, that's what she came away from that feeling. Uh-huh. You don't feel like you can share things with me. I said, well, <laughs> of course, not being the most tactful person in the world, what did I do but get out my shovel and say, well, you don't handle things so well <laughs> as I'm digging deeper. <laughs> And I said, look, it wasn't anything for sure, and I knew you would just fall apart, so I just figured it's better not to tell you until I know for sure. And then when it turned out to not be anything, I didn't even think it was worth talking about at that point. I, as soon as the doctor said it wasn't cancer, I never called you and said it wasn't cancer, did I? I, I, just, I come to find out that right. I, I knew that it wasn't. I think you eventually did tell me. I don't think I ever said it wasn't cancer. I said what it was instead. Okay, yeah. Like, I never called anyone up to say, oh, hey, oh, it's not cancer. Oh, I'm so relieved. Because it was, once it, once I found out it wasn't, that was no longer a part of my life that I even considered. Yeah. And and it just, and so it's, when Sheridan here says, it wasn't that bad. I just, I connect with that. I understand what he's doing here. He's saying, there is no reason for you to know the crap of my life that I had to sludge through. I should just shield you from that. It, it, it's an interesting relationship between the two of them because I think they both shield each other. Yes. they like We I, seem to lend to it over and over. Yeah, she is and never tell him what happens on Minbar. Or at least we never see her telling that. And we never see Sheridan really opening up about the certain you know terrible things that have happened. This doesn't ever happen. Which, by the way, uh, going back to this, uh, the diagnosis, I I really thought that they should have come back and diagnosed you as just being a big sissy. (laughs) Well, that's just my my thoughts. You know, I think I paid them enough that they're uncomfortable (laughs) with that. (laughs) They know they're going to get those recurring payments if they give me a more palatable diagnosis. (laughs) 
<laughs> Here, these pills will help you stop being a sissy. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's just interesting because I, you know, this, like I said, this is a fight that is still going on between my wife and I right now because I don't agree with her. I understand her point of view. She feels like I should share things with her. But I just say there are certain things that it's not going to do you any good to know. Yeah. When you found out that it was gout, when you, you know, when the doctor finally said, oh, hey, yeah, we figured it out. We know what it is. It's at that point that you should have said, okay, honey, I have the gout. And boy, what a relief. You know, I'm actually feeling good about this because for a while they thought it might be cancer. Because then at that point, she's not going to think, oh my gosh, you you could have had cancer. It's, right. oh, it's not cancer. It's just the gout. And, and I agree with you. I understand what you're saying there. Yeah. In, intellectually, I agree with you. But like I said, in my mind, I had so far moved past it. Yeah. The, the level of relief was so great that emotionally, I immediately turned away from that experience. You need to check in with me more often. <laughs> I will help you through these pitfalls in your marriage. I, uh, though not married, I feel that I can guide you through some of these. Anyway, it was just, I, you know, that scene, it's, it's a small line. It's a tiny line out of the entire episode. Yeah. But for me, it was very, very poignant, especially with what's going on in my personal life right now. Yeah, good catch. That's a good share. Thank you. Um, anything else? Listener comments. Comments, okay. Um, Brainy Smurf. Yeah, let's see here. Uh, not in the right place. Okay. Lanier's quote of the week, referring to Londo. I don't know, but knowing the ambassador, I am already depressed by the options. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Another spoo- uh, super spooky wookie opener, and the return of a good B story back on Babby 5. And more Mars. I'm not sure if it's possible for Garibaldi to use his wit to pull off a rescue, but I love when they rescue the box and he mutters, I was going to kick your son of a son. The voice kind of sounds like Emo Pete. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know I had an Emo Pete. Rest in peace, terrible actor prison guards. The truth speaks for itself. Cool looking shadow earth ships. Number one gives Garibaldi a run for his bankruptcy with her quote unquote acting. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> that was unkind to, to both of them. <laughs> Come on. You're gonna seriously sit there and defend I didn't say I, I didn't say it was untrue. I said it was unkind. <laughs> she also gives little respect for the box who has promised freedom to Mars offering only a skeleton crew to assist in the rescue op. But most importantly, we have the hottest chick of the series, who leads the Three Stooges through the Martian tunnels to the main staging area for the rescue. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) To each his own. To each his own. (laughs) Agreed. With no name in the credits, I refer to this hottie via one of her few lines as Marsquake. She also played one of the three sirens in the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is a fantastic movie. Yes, Fantastic film. If you people haven't seen that, go see it. Uh, Sci-Fi 9, TV 5, Hot Lips, Marsquake 10. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Gotta throw the MASH reference in there. That's great. I I don't remember her. Like, she's attractive, yeah. Yeah. But I don't remember looking at her thinking... Oh, wow. She's great. More than uh, Julie, what was her name? Julia Assange? Julie Noir? 
the the one who undressed in Captain Sheridan's room. He's yeah. about to go where every man has gone before. Yeah. I, anyway, over to uh, Moneybags. He says, So now that Garibaldi has been released, we need a way for him to prove his innocence. Luckily, we have telepaths in this universe. It's cheesy, but I guess it works. Cool battle scene. Ivanova's butt-kicking speech is actually pretty decent, especially when she calls the guy Sweetheart. Marcus, you'll never know, scene is just downright creepy. Why has he decided to never tell Susan about his love for her? <laughs> I never thought of it that way. It's like, now he's a stalker instead of, instead of being forlorn and, and romantic. romantic. And, <laughs> it's just creepy now. Thanks a lot. It's like some guy who, you know, his... his Creech, uh, crouching in the bushes <laughs> yes. to suddenly he You'll snuck into know. your house and is petting your hair. You'll never know. <laughs> oh, that scene has just totally changed forever for me. <laughs> he continues, Lita is going to sue someone. Groan. Obviously, we need to see Sheridan rescued. Um, oh, sorry. The sip gulp scene was funnier. I liked it better than the fasten or zip scene from season one. Oh, I like that scene. I think Fasten and Zip is funnier. Yeah, me too. Uh, this episode suffers from cheesy action scenes. Obviously, we need to see Sheridan rescued, but it just seems too easy. Maybe I've just been spoiled by films like Ocean's Eleven. TV 6, Sci-Fi 6. You know, I'm with them. It seems like they would have a huge contingent of people who are watching over Sheridan. But it seems like there's... One, two, three people. Five. Four or five people. And then uh, they just get right out. Yeah. Like the, the That's what th happens when you come up the dumpster tunnel. I guess. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, those are comments. Okay. Pete, science science fiction. fiction is, for me, a seven on this. Oh, wow. Really? I, you think that's low or high? I think that's low. Okay. I think the space battle... Uh, I think the space battle is really, okay. truly great. I, I do. The rescue of Sheridan and the the Garibaldi stuff? No. What about not. the League of Non-Aligned Worlds stuff? Yeah, that's okay. Okay. But it doesn't bring it up any higher than I, 7. For, for me, me, this is probably my favorite space battle in Babylon 5. Really? Yeah. The, the, the tactics that are on display in there as these... Tiny dart ships try to both fend off the the personal fighter and the huge carrier class uh, ships. Uh, the tactics that they display, like that flying wedge that they have and and stuff like that, I, I just I really geek out over this scene every time. Yeah, I, I it just doesn't do anything for okay. me. What what did you end up giving it? I give it a nine. You this give is, it a nine. This is wow. probably my, my favorite space battle in the whole series. Interesting. It's not mine. I, I think earlier stuff was much better. Okay. Uh, for television, though, I'm going to give this a five. M middle of the road. Uh, the, the, the space battle stuff can be watched and people can see it, but all of the other stuff is like... I, I, I wanted to give it a seven. I, I like My initial rating was a seven, but then mm -hmm. the Ivanova delivery of her speech, yeah. I bring it down to a six. It takes a ding for that. The uh, P5 rating is 8.84. Moving on to our next episode, Highlander Endgame. <laughs> The battle uh, I think I might have watched the wrong thing. I think you might have. <laughs> the battle for the freedom of Earth. 
Huzzah! We have the final push. Yeah. And uh, they send Ivanova to Babylon 5. And they're sending telepaths to each cruiser. Right. I can't remember how they managed excuse me, to get the telepaths down to Mars. I get that they had some spy down there who was, you know, a part of the shipping department and was <laughs> supplying all of the ships, so whatever. Okay, that works. That's fine. But how did they get they them? They never showed it. In fact, it, it's kind it's of It's just funny. sort of like a wave of the hand. The telepaths It's kind there. of funny because we see Franklin and Lita riding the tube on Mars as they're heading... As they, they So they've come down to Mars. They get on the tube, and they're riding the tube down. Uh-huh. And they go and they meet with number one. And they're talking to number one. They're like, oh yeah, and here's our cargo. And they just start parading this line <laughs> of cryogenic freezer uh-huh. units through. They're like, wait, how did those get there? <laughs> and how did no one notice? <laughs> it's bizarre. It's always been like a huge plot hole. Okay, okay. <laughs> Anyway, it happens. <laughs> yeah, just this accept is just it. our luggage. Please pay no attention to the cryogenic <laughs> freezer units. Or the, or the big Psycor symbol on them. Yeah. Just don't look at that. Um, okay, so we were introduced now to Sheridan's teacher, which apparently he only had one when he went through the training to become... I don't know that that's what they're saying. They made it sound like this guy was his teacher, I, I, and I, he taught him everything, I and he knows as, him backwards and forwards. I look like, at it as this was his personal advisor. This was his his dean or his uh, thesis I advisor. I, I don't buy that. Okay. I don't buy that at all. So is he a general or an admiral or a captain in the fleet, or is he someone who just hung out and trained people? Well, I think what they're trying to tell us is that he is a general that has general uh, has been generally. <laughs> that's, a gen- that's still an appropriate word. He, he, he was a general that was in the training unit. He was so he was like uh, oh, what was the guy's name? Ender's Game, the head of the battle school. Graf. Graf. He's Graf. And when when push came to shove, and they actually wanted to stop Sheridan. They went and they got his thesis advisor from back when he was at school and said, okay, you're reactivated. We're going to plant you on this ship. Yeah, but he's in charge of the whole stinking thing now. Well, yeah, he was always a general. I, I just don't buy that from him. It's but just, you buy it from Graf? Because Graf does a very similar thing in the Ender series. Yeah, but they don't put Graf in charge of the entire IF fleet. When, when Ender goes to the officer's school... Yeah. They put Graf in charge of the officer's school with him. No. I have to go back and read it again. Yeah, he definitely okay. is not. Um, so, it just seems ridiculous to me, especially because the actor that they got doesn't look like he's particularly older than Sheridan is. Uh, well, that's a good point. That was my last I argument. I that. Okay. And yeah, yes, I know. Some people age differently, you know. Some people just look younger, you know, a la Dick Clark, and it, it just happens. Well, you know that Dick Clark is a robot, right? <laughs> the man had a stroke. Leave him alone. His battery died. <laughs> oh, terrible. 
Um, anyway, I just found that part of it unpalatable. Okay. The the guy who plays that, that general, General Leftcourt, he actually played a general on the West Wing as well. Oh, really? He was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Oh, nice. Good yeah. for him. So apparently people think he has a military look about him. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know what they're all saying. He looked like the nicest, baby, most baby-faced old man I've ever seen. He looked a little soft to me. Yeah. That's... It just doesn't pan out that that you know to be a hardened uh, war person. Uh, so they 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 break into this uh, base on Mars. Uh-huh. First of all, I'm sorry. There's no way you're bursting through an airlock and surprising anyone. <laughs> Do they not understand how airlocks work? <laughs> There's a decompression chamber in the middle, and it lets everyone know on the inside. Hey, by the way, this door out here is open. <laughs> So, generally, people don't know about that. that. That was a little bit frustrating for me. And then I can't figure out. As soon as they get control of the place, they shut the door. And the guy turns around. And starts welding. And starts welding. And and so my, my immediate thought, every time I watch this episode, is like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Weld the door shut. They can't come in. And then what does he do? 30 seconds later, open it. <laughs> yes. 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 Notice the Terrible. same thing. Oh, it drives me crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't understand why they were doing that. I don't at know all. what he was doing over there. It, clearly, if you go back and watch it, he's not welding, but it's—I mean, he's he, the, the, the thing that he's doing literally is welding, but he's off on the wall, like way over on the side, away from the door. Yeah, it, it, the director really must have been like, "Hey, what, what is that guy doing in the background?" And then just got distracted and just like never went back to correct it or something. Um, okay, so they have the most ridiculous set of code names ever. Oh, I was going to work past okay. that and jump to... They open a jump point inside the, the atmosphere. atmosphere. That's awesome. Awesome. And they bring... Marcus brings a white star in and just starts leveling the place. Just blowing <laughs> things up left and right. Causing trouble. Um, that looked really cool. And so um, then they send Lita out. And it's her job... They send her out because she needs to be in direct eye contact. <laughs> and so she just looks up. <laughs> I don't know why that's supposed to so, work. So here's I, I get decided. the whole idea of line of sight. I, I get that when you're dealing with, you know, like communications and whatnot. Uh, okay, fine. But from, I don't... Here, here's what I've decided. It's a mental thing. They think that the thing blocks them, <laughs> therefore it does. Okay, that is what isn't, I decided. Isn't, uh, that a, a form of Desartes, uh, you know, I think, I think therefore, therefore I am. <laughs> I think therefore I can use my psychic abilities. I, I honestly think that that's that, that is the only plausible explanation, and I'm willing to accept it. <laughs> Look, I'm willing to accept that Lita can just do whatever she wants. Because it's clear she can do, like, some awesome things over great distances. Right. Um, but why it is she has to go outside, and that also we're supposed to believe, okay, they must be exactly directly overhead. What if she was looking in the wrong direction? It's all in her mind. She has to believe that she's yeah. on line of sight. Yeah. I, like I said, it's it just... It is. It's a little bit weird. Because what if they're on the other side of the planet that she really can't see him? And then what's the point of going outside in the first place? Okay, I got all that out of me. Uh, so they... Well, 
I, I want to jump to what Lead is doing. Okay. Is that what you were doing? No, go ahead. Okay. Is it immoral to use the telepaths that way? They're using them as weapons, specifically. Because the whole point of them is these um, telepaths... They're basically like an EMP. <laughs> <laughs> the, their whole point is they, they go in and they disrupt uh, what is going on with the ship? They they merge once they're woken up. They merge with technology, and they're trying to you know look for the shadow vessel to try and get in control of it. And Sheridan's idea is: look, they'll disrupt everything, and then that will allow us to come in, and which is what they do. They sweep in. They start to disable engines and guns. Right. And then they fly off to to go to the next thing. So my question that it, when all of this was happening is, is this immoral of Sheridan to be doing this? Now, I, granted, these are uh, telepaths who have been altered. Mm -hmm. And to the best of our understanding, we don't know how to fix them. There doesn't seem to be, we, thus far, we cannot find any way to help them come back. Whether they were good or bad, we don't know. It's never told to us. These are just people. Shadow-turned yeah. telepaths. So, we can't rescue them. Why not put them to good use? Right? Yeah. You're okay. So so here's my here's my my response to your question. I just didn't I wanted to let you get the whole question out there before I answered it. I'm not done yet. <laughs> Franklin's response, I think, bears some consideration here. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you think about what it logically means, his response is, look, without the resources of Earth, <coughs> there's no way I'm ever going to be able to free these people from the shadow technology. And at that point, they become less used as a weapon and more involved in their own liberation. So at that point, they are just another kind of unit in Sheridan's army. And at sure. that point, it's moral. Sure would be nice if they could have asked them for volunteers. Unfortunately, they couldn't. All right. I hope they took Bester's girl. <laughs> I hope she was on the front line. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Looks like I'm immoral. <laughs> Who nice. saw that coming? It's, it's nice that we hate her so much, having never met her, <laughs> just because of her association with Bester. <laughs> she may have been the thing that would have turned Bester around, but we still want to kill her. Uh, okay, so as a computer guy, when Marcus says, download to my password only, I tear out tufts of hair and say, <laughs> that makes no sense! Download to my password? You know... Okay. Say, say he, encrypt to my password. Say, download and then encrypt. You know, download he, to my password. He's shortcutting here. Yeah, it drives me nuts. Yeah, it, it it's was, a person who doesn't it, know how computers work, trying to write computer talk. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to say, we finally have a good use for Doctor Franklin. <laughs> Medical logs, <laughs> finally using him in a good purpose. And I like that they showed a few different medical logs. Yeah. It wasn't that they just like go right to the exact one. Like he's got to wade through, a, well, three <laughs> out of the five. But anyway. Anyway, Marcus deserts. And uh, he sends Lanier back aboard and... Takes the White Star. We see the White Star turn in the background and mm -hmm. whoop, gone. 
Um, let's see here. I, my next thing is Sheridan gives a speech. Who does he give a speech to? To the Hulk fleet, right before they launched mm, okay. Earth. Okay. Apparently I liked it. Um, I do like the fact that there is a planetary defense grid. Okay. I really enjoy that. And the fact that they seem to be scattered all over Earth. Yeah. It isn't just in one specific place. Although it seems like maybe they could just, you know, they could turn and position them and bring them all to, to one place. But I like the idea that we have a planetary defense grid and we need to start working on one. I, I was a little disappointed to see that it involves missile, missiles instead of energy weapons. This is, the, this is the first time in all of Babylon 5 we've seen conventional weaponry of this sort. No, we had missiles getting fired from the uh, Epsilon. Oh, you're right, from Epsilon 3. You're right. That was the only other time that I can think of yeah. that missiles specifically are used. I, I mean, the missiles, they look cool. I like how they launch out. And, like and, they're supposed to be big warheads, n- yeah. nuclear warheads. Sorry, um, nuclear. And, and it was interesting. He sends out the Star Furies to stop the missiles. But it, it appears that the bulk of the Star Furies <laughs> method for stopping the missiles... Just run into run it. Run into it. <laughs> Well, I have these guns, these pulse cannons. Clearly they're useless. Mm. Really? Oh, speed. Ah, ah. <laughs> Just throw myself at them. Maybe if I, you know, slowly creep up on it, I can... Nope, boom, you're dead. <laughs> um, and then we find out that uh, Clark eats his gun. Yeah. So to speak. Um, and we see... I think it's interesting. Did you pay attention at all? Did anything about that scene bother you? It bothered me. The fact that they never show his face except for when he's dead. That didn't bother me. What bothered me was that he points the gun at his temple in an upward angle. No, I thought the angle was okay. I thought the angle was okay. You thought the angle was okay. You thought he was... Oh, oh, oh. to shoot yourself and kill yourself, yes. But when they show him later on and they have... The the wound wound is down. down by his neck. He was not holding the gun up at the top of his head. He was holding it at his temple, straight and kind of up a little bit, but the wound comes out down by his neck. That just bugged me. Look, there's one thing you need to understand. As a phrenologist, (laughs) your skull does different things... It ended up moving. So it was like ricocheting around inside the skull. It finally exited out down below in the fleshy areas. <sighs> Sorry, I, you didn't pick up on that. Um, okay, so they come in and they find him, and they're like, "Oh, Captain, we can't disable the defense grid," which apparently he was the one who had control over them. And then right before he killed himself, locked it locked it out. I don't buy that. Like, there's only one place that controls the planetary defense grid. Okay, whatever. Fine. Well, he just installed a computer virus that ate away the control software. Sure, fine. Okay. Whatever. Like I'm saying, I'll roll my eyes at it. Move on. Um, What was... It's like she picks up this piece of paper, Mm -hmm. and he's got written over and over and over again... Ascension of the Common Man. And then he circled specific letters... To make it say, Scorched Earth. Is that just us supposed to be thinking that this guy is... Like, like he's just crazy? Yeah, absolutely. He's just nuts. He's a nutcase. Okay, because I sort of thought, not to try and defend him, but that he was trying to send a message, a signal, that, you know, perhaps he's got some little creature... Oh, you think he had a keeper? Yeah, on him. No. 
He's just a he. He's a Nashian. <laughs> not, wow, not, that's not no. fair. Screw you, dude. <laughs> not you, the beautiful mind guy. I can't remember what it was. Was it schizophrenia? Yeah. That he had? Yeah. And he's out in the garage doing all the connections. Oh, look at all these connections between all these things. That's that's the kind of vibe that we're supposed to get from that. Mm, okay, so he really is nuts. Okay, um, so we... Um, they're they're destroying all of the planetary defense grid. Yep. They're blowing them up because they've, you know, they're turning around. They're going to start killing Earth. Uh, and then they come to find out, okay, there's one left. The Agamemnon's the only one near it, and they can't they no fire anymore. And so you, you see the, the, the captain mentally girding his loins <laughs> to, to utter the response, ramming speed. Yeah. Get me ramming speed. We're gonna we're just gonna plow through it. And then all of a sudden, the Apollo shows up and's like, Hey, we've been monitoring everything. Look out, we're gonna take care of this one for you and they blow up the thing. And, you know, they yep. you know, they save the day. Um what, what would that be like? Emotionally? To have made made your peace with that moment? Yeah. To to like think, okay, Logically, there's only one thing I have left, which is this ship. I'm going to die. There's really no other way around this, probably. And, okay, let's go. And then, like, right at the very end, oh, you're free. You know, I've never really thought about the emotional <laughs> roller coaster that you would be putting yourself through. Well, the only way I think we can actually answer that question is for me to choke the life out of you, <laughs> and then right before you die, resuscitate you. <laughs> So, just lean over a little bit here, <laughs> and you can tell me how That's it feels. That's what we have an intern for. <laughs> I, I like that you're always telling me I should be nicer to him, but the minute your life's at risk, he goes under the bus. <laughs> exactly. We've got to protect me. Uh, okay, let's see here. Um, oh, okay. So, we have Marcus. He's uh, he's decided to run back to Babylon 5 because he's figured out that there's this alien device. And he hooks himself up. And it's he just puts it on autopilot and just it sucks away. Lays down next to her to die. Yeah, sucks away his life. By the way, how creepy now. Now that we have the creepy Marcus mental image, Ivanova wakes up and finds him laying next to her dead. Doesn't that just now that whole scene is just ruined? <laughs> So, uh, here's what I'm thinking. I believe that Marcus can manage to work his way through all of those guards. I even believe that he can figure out that the machine exists. What I have a hard time believing is that he figured out how to run it, how to operate it. Yes, I get that he knows Mimbari technology. He's smart. I, I think there's a perfectly logical explanation for this. Franklin left notes about how he'd figured out how to make it work. Really? Okay. I, I can agree with you that that would be the smart medical thing to do. Put down and s explain exactly how it does here's, work. Here's what we do know about it. Yes, we don't know everything, Okay. here's what we know. Okay, that that's fine. My big thing is, okay, one person's life, you're going to suck away your life and give it to them, and that's you know going to save them. I get it. And there's no way to then save that person who just gave their life. Right. Get it. Why not instead of just sucking away everybody, or sucking away one person, take a bit from several different people? 
obviously volunteers who say, you know what, I know Commander Ivanova and I'm willing to give up, you know, 30 minutes on the machine yeah. for her. Wouldn't that work? And why couldn't they do it? But I get that this is supposed to be the Marcus's grand gesture and this is his way of going out. We, I think it, I think it comes back to Marcus is a pretty flawed guy at the end of the day. As much as we love what he does, he's tough. You know, the women think he's a, a handsome <laughs> hunk. Uh, you know, the things, all the things that we love about Marcus, at the end of the day, he's an emotional wreck and has been from the first moment we met him. Yeah, he gets into the Rangers because of the death of his brother, really. Right, right. And, and so the guy is is fundamentally flawed, and it's that flaw that causes him to say, I have to do this. I have to give my life for Ivanova. And it's it's bad. It is a bad thing. I, you know, I'm terrified that my children are going to learn that kind of weird codependent relationship stuff because it's really prominent in our world today. People have this problem where they really think that this is an okay way to communicate with each other. That, you know, everything has to be angst and, and you know, horror and... Yeah, emo, I think, is the word that was used earlier. <laughs> Marcus is emo, and that's what an emo person goes and does, apparently. Yeah, uh, it does seem as though it's, it's... It is supposed to be a grand gesture, but it does kind of play off a little bit more like, oh, I'm giving up my life. When, when we, when we cover know, it, season wrap-up, we'll talk a little bit about how this doubly sucks because now you've killed off Marcus and Claudia Christian is leaving the show. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It really could have worked itself out so much better. <laughs> she just dies. Just let her die! <laughs> oh, well. Um, okay, listener comments? Yes. Okay. Uh, Moneybags says, There are only two events in TV history that I just refuse to accept. And by that, I mean that I have struck them from my personal canon. <laughs> Number one, Henry Blake's helicopter didn't crash. Wow, okay. MASH season sure. one, I believe. The message radar received was in error. Number two, Marcus and Susan live happily ever after. <laughs> now, by the way, he has a, a, a spoilery thing. Yeah. We're skipping that. Yeah. By the way, Joey said I didn't know well enough if we should. Joey says we should skip not, it. Not until we've seen Sleeping in the Light. Yeah. Um, uh, he says that he prefers his own non-creepy version. We'll just leave it at that. And, and we'll, we'll we'll come back to it. Yeah. The scene where where Marcus dies is heartrending, and what a great callback, especially since we already had one callback to the alien healing device in season two. Having said that, allow me to nitpick. In the next episode, Franklin says that Marcus must have hacked his way through half a dozen security checks. Um, really? Because it looks like he just did a Google search. Are all Franklin's medical records publicly available? <laughs> Is there no HIPAA in the future? Being a software engineer, stuff like this drives me crazy. Awesome battle scene. I always wondered why Clark didn't have more of a role in the series. I believe he has three speaking scenes with only a couple of lines each. And what was his mutton chops? 
Is he his fat Elvis Presley? <laughs> or fat Elvis phase? I Again, I think that was what he's looking at thinking is mutton chops are the blast. It's the burnt one, yeah. Yeah. TV 8, Sci-Fi 8. Uh, thank you very much, Moneybags. Good uh, insight as always, sir. Uh, over to Brainy Smurf. He says, President Clark ended uh, end up being as interesting as the claw from Inspector Gadget. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Gadget. <laughs> Why never give him a face? But to the box, yes. Great plan. Calculated sacrifice. Very Seldonian. 1,000 years of darkness to prevent 30,000. The actor who plays the box's teacher is so awful. His constant narrating of the tactical situation is very forced, but conversely, I thought that Dr. Love's explanation of the telebombs served as a great reveal and a well-timed payoff. And the box is always good for the sweet delivery of a kick-a speech. Ding dong, the wicked claw is dead. But rest in peace, Marcus. Sci-Fi 9, TV 6. Rock on dudes, Ambassador... Brainy Smurf. Many thanks, uh, Brainy Smurf. Uh, uh, good email. Uh, Joey, for science fiction, what do you say? Uh, I put a nine, but I'm I'm thinking an eight now. I'm gonna say eight. Coward. This is totally a nine. <laughs> I know we. I complained I just about didn't it. I want to agree with you. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> successful. Um, I know that I disagree. I had issues with a few of these things in here, but all in all. This is awesome science fiction. We have a ton of different things happening, and for the most part, they are all really well laid out. You know, to you know, choreographed with the the Mars, the telepaths, the destroying the ships. Now moving on to the next thing. Oh, Marcus is figuring out something, and then you know the the scorched Earth. We got to blow up all of the stuff. Really, really good science fiction for me. I liked it. I give it a nine. Okay. Uh, for TV, I give it a six. I just think there are a few things that are a little bit over the top. Agreed. I'm right there with you. A six for the same reasons. Uh, the P5 rating is 9.27. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Homestarmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801 801- 788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening. Morning sun, it's good to see you again. So good to see you.